This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Hi, and welcome to this Research in Practice podcast with our colleagues from NSPCC. I'm Susanna Bowyer, I'm the Assistant Director on the Child and Family side of Research in Practice. And today we're going to be talking with um, a team of colleagues from NSPCC about some of the learning that they've gained around helping children and families during and after the pandemic across 2020 and into 2021. We've lined up the recording and release of this podcast to um, coincide, to coordinate with um, a spotlight that NSPCC are putting um, on a key learning that they've done in this pandemic period. So there are a number of reports being released um, and a, a number of really important messages that are very valuable to share. And of course, we at Research and Practice and all of us really across the country in different sectors, but within, within the local authority part of our network, we've also been um, talking to people very much about some of these challenges, what we've learned and some of the adaptations that we've had to make. So there's a lot of um, joining the dots and shared learning that we can do between the work that NSPCC has done and, um, and the rest of the research and practice membership as well. The big focus in some of this spotlight programme is around um, the um, complexities, challenges and opportunities of developing blended working between face-to-face -face and virtual um, practice activity. Um, but it's also a really important factor, I think, that um, NSPCC are focused in on thinking about um, responses to immediate needs arising for children and families and communities and um, and the learning that they've drawn from that. So um, we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about that as well initially. But before we get into that, let's um, just introduce um, the colleagues who are on the podcast. So I'll um, ask you to introduce yourselves going across my screen where we're recording online here. So Deborah first. Hi, um, my name is Deborah Radford. I'm a service manager working for the NSPCC in York. Lovely. Ashling? Uh, my name is Ashling McAlerney uh, and I work as a senior development researcher within the development impact team. And Matt? I'm Matt Ford. I'm partnership, uh, partnerships and development director at the NSPCC. Lovely. Great. Okay, so let's start then by... Um, thinking about what you've learned about helping children and families. And in doing that, obviously you've been listening and talking to the children and families that you're working with. So um, Ashling, would you tell us a bit first about how you've been going about gathering those insights from children and families and from your practitioners to try and understand their experiences of the support they've received from NSPCC over the last year or so? Yes, of course, Susanna. So I, I guess um, April time, uh, we recognised very quickly um, that it was important that we capture as much learning from this experience uh, as possible, because that will be used to inform and shape our practice going forward and to share it with others across the sector. Um, so what we did was we pulled together a research and insights project uh, using a range of different methods, really, to try and capture as much or as full a picture as we could from the perspective of not only those who are 
working directly with children and families, but to engage the children and families as much as possible themselves. Um, and we also did it in a way that we wanted to collect that data from basically April, May, right through the summer, so that we would have recognizing that things were going to develop um, and evolve as time went on. Um, so what we set out to do was really to, to document and describe the journey and, and what that felt like, not only for our own staff, but also for the families. Um, we want to identify what had worked well, what hadn't worked well. Um, and we wanted to engage our service users directly in telling their own story. And as well as that, looking towards the future in terms of identifying some staff training needs. So we did a range of focus groups and interviews with our staff and also a survey um, with them looking at their attitudes and beliefs around using virtual and digital methods to deliver services. And then later on uh, in the autumn time, we did a um, series of interviews with um, service users. Um, and I suppose within the context of all that was going on around us in the external environment, um, we, we interviewed uh, 12 children and young people aged between 8 and 18 who had used our services uh, right across um, the countries of the nations that we work in. Um, we tried to ensure that we got, we we spoke to children with a range of, of experiences across all our services, whether that be therapeutic recovery from sexual abuse or whether it be um, early help services. Um, and we, um, of those 12 children, we spoke to um, three with special education needs and disabilities um, and two looked after children as well. The majority of the children, 10 of them were female were girls uh, and we also spoke to three external delivery partners who had worked with us and I think Matt and Deborah will share some examples and some some um, practice in that respect later on um, so essentially and we also then use our case service data the routine data that we normally collect um, and data that in many in many times in many organizations we collect it but we don't make best use of it so we wanted to make sure that we captured that we had a look at it and to see what we could learn from it so uh, we looked at all of the children and young people and parents who had accessed our services between March and um, July. Uh, and in this case, it was uh, over 1800 um, to look at who they were, what their na the nature of their engagement was um, and how we had responded in terms of the service that they'd accessed. So it was incredibly um, sort of quick off the mark, brilliantly quick off the mark, really, that you developed a, a research programme in the midst of all of those challenges that we were all facing to actually be um, attuned enough to think, well, let's kind of get capturing this live learning. I mean, that's that was very... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there are other services where we did, um, like such, such as the Pregnancy in Mind, a virtual service where we actually have, we're just about to report on an outcomes evaluation, again, using routine data, because the model was adapted and we felt, let's get as much learning from this as we can. I mean, and we had fantastic collaboration from our teams in terms of compiling that data and, and learning from it. And there's a real sense, I think overall, yeah. uh, all of the data, the thing that comes, that sticks out most for me is really about the real commitment of our practitioners and our teams to really being flexible and adapt, uh, agile and adapting what they were doing to meet the needs of families in a way that worked for families and then to take as much learning from that as possible whether that be contributing to the research whether it be um, supporting the inputting of data when they had so many other things on um, or whether you know whether it be um, coming together in groups within their own teams or across teams to share learning on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. throughout the response to the pandemic and that in a sense was really one of the key things that that comes out of this about that commitment and putting children at the heart of it 
it and being really flexible and going those extra nine yards to t- to to do the very best we can. It's really incredible, isn't it? And and you know we we value and recognise our NHS and you know arguably haven't probably given enough airtime to this incredible sort of commitment that people have mm-hmm. been um, working with over this period. So what would be a couple of the kind of key messages from that body of research? And obviously that's a really rich body of material and, and the reports that you're putting out will, will give much more detail on that. But what would be, you know, a couple of the key messages from that that you'd like to share in this? Yeah, context? I think I think one of the, the key things that has come out of this um, really in terms of looking at virtual and digital delivery, like had we considered this time last year, would we use technology to deliver services um, to vulnerable children and families? We most likely would have said that that wasn't possible. Um, and I'm not saying that it is always possible or it's always a thing to do, but in some circumstances and some services and for some people, for some children and families, it is it does work well. Um, and there are significant benefits to be gained from that. We know that in some of our services, for example, that they were able to extend their reach um, and um, engage with parents or children who otherwise wouldn't have they wouldn't have been able to engage because whether that was to do with geography or whether it was to do with some of the barriers to engagement, maybe parents being too anxious to attend or to have someone come into their home, finding that too stressful. Whereas what we know is that um, parents were able to build relationships with practitioners virtually and remotely at a pace that actually suited them. Um, And I see that coming out of some of the literature uh, that's coming out, you know, in terms of the academics that are publishing, whether that's Mira Beginsky, uh, you know, and Jill Manthorpe in the early days, or whether it's more recently Jenny Driscoll, both from King's College, are talking about how actually that building of a relationship in some circumstances have actually opened up where children were able to engage more where otherwise they wouldn't. I'm not, one of the key things we must remember is it's not a one size fits all. It doesn't work for all families. It doesn't work Mm. in all circumstances, but anything that helps us meet the needs of and address barriers to engagement for some families is worth considering and and taking forward. And it it doesn't work for even for one person all the time, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that was, you know, Deborah and I were chatting the other day and I think that was one of the surprises that maybe as an adult, there was an assumption that children and young people would be happy and would be keen to have uh, to engage via technology and certainly for some children that wasn't the case we have very uh, I spoke to one young woman who did not want to um, use technology and uh, to engage in her therapeutic um, in her therapeutic recovery journey and she didn't want to do it it wasn't just about technology she didn't want to do that work in her home she wanted to go to the safe place of the service center where she felt comfortable um, and then go back to her home, which had nothing. She didn't want to have those difficult uh, conversations in a home context and bring that um, type of stuff into her home. So yeah. it's very much something that we need to consider in an individual uh, in an individual context about what suits and what works for. I mean, one of the things that came out, it was a phrase, place and space most appropriate place and space um, to do the required work to support, to provide the support um, for children and families. Yeah. And I think the work that we've been doing, um, colleagues of mine at the moment have been through consulting with um, with practitioners and quality assurance leads and a whole range of people and, and children and families as well, is to start to shape a, a kind of practice framework to, to think about the principles and values underpinning those decisions at any time in the case in the course of working with somebody about when um digital and face-to-face practice is and isn't um the 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 best way around things so 
you know, there's a lot of learning then also mm. for us to share yeah. back. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there was one um, really lovely example from a, um, a young girl who was engaged in our, one of our therapeutic recovery services who had began and completed all of her therapeutic work in an online context um, and had worked and her mother had been involved in the session, some of the sessions and they took place at home. And it was just a really rich um it was just a really rich example of how for some children it can work very well. Um, and she had, when buildings became COVID secure, she had gone in and met uh, her worker in a face-to-face context, but actually decided that she preferred to complete the work online. So, um, and they, you know, we do hear sometimes that, oh, it's not possible to do some therapeutic work in an online context, but really creative examples of um, practice undertaken in in you know on one of the video conferencing things were very practical creative activities so for some children and in some contexts again it can it can work so we'll come back um and hear a bit more about um about the uh the digital the hybrid practice yeah. and that's one of the things mm. i'm challenged with what's the what's the terminology we're going to use yeah okay great so It'd be great to hear a little bit more about, um, uh, you know, the kind of ground level experience and understanding that um, that you and your colleagues have gained in this period of working um, alongside families in communities. And what I picked up from uh, the briefing note that you shared with me was that there's some particularly strong messages from the Together for Childhood areas um, where NSPCC is embedded in local communities. So, Matt, might you tell us a little bit about what is a Together for Childhood area and why you think perhaps there's been some really strong um, learning to come out of those areas in this pandemic era? So Together for Childhood is a, a programme we have which is about developing place-based partnerships in communities across the country. And so far we have four of them in Glasgow, Grimsby, Stoke and Plymouth. And what, you know, what it's about is us um, getting involved in a partnership, a meaningful partnership with local people, the community, community organisations and, uh, and public agencies uh, all around uh, how is it we can work together to make the community a, a good place for children to grow up in, uh, how we can improve children's well-being and keep them safe. Uh, and they've been running for three years now, um, and uh, in all of the places that we're working, they're developing very much in a locally led way. So they all look slightly different, but what they have in common is that we're alongside and working with and sharing learning across with local people, local organizations, and we're kind of really embedded in community life. So it meant that at the start of the pandemic, you know, we, we were in the community uh, and really in a place to understand and see firsthand the impact of the pandemic and the lockdown on children and on families. So it's once again, as it so often is in this area of work, it's it's back to relationships. Relate you you started out in this pandemic with some strong existing networks and relationships in those local areas. Yeah, so I mean, so right at the start, I mean, I think along with many, many people all across the country in all sorts of walks of life, we were asking ourselves, how is it we can step up here and, and be there for people in the community? And in the Together for Childhood areas, uh, we thought this is, you know, th- this is uh, an extraordinary situation. 
we don't know what's going to happen next and how things are going to uh, turn out, but we need to do what we can to be there for children along with other people. So our first sort of uh, port of call was actually our colleagues in, in children's services uh, uh, to, to, to really understand how it is we could work together uh, along with them and the community organisations that we were alongside. Uh, so, for example, to give an example in Glasgow, we, 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 we said right at the start, look, if you have families who are getting referred to that you can't get to because you, 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 your resources are so stretched, uh, we're there and we, we'll go beyond our normal service sort of boundaries and we, we, we'll just get in touch with families in whatever way we can and see what we can do to support them. So, so that, that was our kind of orientation to start with. Um, but another thing that we did, I think that was really quite important was that we, could, we these, these projects are there based on a kind of ethos of sharing learning that we learn together, that we create the solutions together. Uh, so obviously for us, it's, we've got a big emphasis on getting the learning out of that. So we have evaluation teams working within these partnerships. So we were able to turn the evaluation uh, colleagues' efforts into actually extracting the learning from what was going to unfold. So from the start, they worked alongside our practitioners and uh, got them to uh, provide um, a regular output through reflective diaries of their experiences. Mm -hmm. And that was to get really rich analysis of their experience and to, to understand through the practitioners' eyes what they were learning about children's lives, about the, the experiences of families, and particularly the most vulnerable families. Um, so so that, that, that was the context. Uh, along with everyone else, we were also thinking about how is it we shift to working online? Because at the beginning, you know, our face-to-face -face, face work was suspended along with pretty much every other service. Um, uh, and so we were able to continue some planned work we were able to adapt some of our programs and we were able to put in place a much more basic level of, kind of safe and well sort of contacts and checks with families. Uh, and we were able to contact families who'd never been in, in need of any kind of formal input from any agency who had suddenly been tipped into crisis uh, as a result of the lockdown. So for example, we um, worked with uh, a number of families significant number of families where they had one or more child with additional needs, for example, ADHD or, or autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. And those families, which had been families that would seem to be coping perfectly well in normal times, uh, were suddenly um, faced with a situation where the supports that were vital for their children's sort of ongoing well-being suddenly disappeared overnight completely. Uh, and they were tipped into crisis. So, we, we were thinking about how is it we support those families, but also uh, then threw up other issues that, that emerged. So working online is fine if you've got access to a, a good internet connection and you've got reasonable devices and you've got enough devices for the people in the household. But many of the families we were dealing with didn't have that. So... Uh, Remote, it wasn't so much online delivery, remote contact was, was a phone call. Um, but this, this, the sort of uh, value of that we could see, because a young person, for example, who may have 
uh, agreed to a phone call with a regular uh, allocated worker. When they phone the young person, they're answering on the first ring because they're waiting for that call because it's really, impo really important to them. So we kind of understood from the start that we were going to have to, you know, really venture into new territory. Necessity being the mother of invention, as, as Ashling has said, if you'd asked us before the pandemic, could we deliver the things that we delivered online or online? We said, okay, well, we need to do a piece of work on that. It may take a long time. You know, no, we actually had to get going with it. Um, and I think the, the, the next thing that really proved to be absolutely vital as well was the existing relationships we had with community organisations on the ground. Uh, because you know, in the face of what could have been really quite disheartening to learn through the families we were working with of the hardship that they were facing, financial hardship, the lack of access to the absolute essentials of life. Um, one member of staff saying uh, how it affected us so much to realise what, uh, what anxiety families were experiencing about being able to have enough nappies um, and the relief when they were provided with a supply of nappies, food um, and, and, and being able to meet bills, these things were hugely um, challenging for many, many families. Uh, but because of, because of our relationships in different places, we were able to step up and respond. So on one of the sites, we formed a partnership with a local food bank and a local environmental charity. We established a kind of one-stop shop where, where families got access to food. We ran a toy library, which gave developmentally appropriate toys for the families and they could exchange them week on week and they could get access to other services uh, and they could also get information about where services were still operating because basic information wasn't there for some some of these families and um, that that kind of being able to respond we couldn't have imagined that if we didn't have the pre-existing relationships with these local organizations who, who had the connections right through the community. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we um, heard in talking to uh, children's services departments in London was that that kind of reaching out with practical help and support um, to families who they might have considered that rather um, ungainly phrase hard to engage, which may often actually mean, you know, we're, we're perhaps not um, using the right mechanisms to try and reach out and meet people where they are, um, but that that forward-facing practical hand of support really changed the, the kind of um, dynamic of the relationship between those families and um, children's services departments. Did you see examples of that too, that people felt seen and supported in a way that they might otherwise have felt um, wary or anxious of service involvement in their family life? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, you know, families were very positively engaging with the support that they were getting. And I think it's, uh, you know, it was a turn on its head, the kind of, the, the, the sense that uh, people, that we often have about families being wary of, of, of children's social care, of children's social workers that is in Scotland, uh, and uh, actually really uh, responding very positively to the opportunity to, to connect, not just with, with us, but with other families, and uh, and 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 to to have a, a, a some kind of outlet. 
the kind of isolation that people were feeling, it was quite, uh, quite striking. Um, what, we, what we did see was parents who were quite evidently struggling with their own mental health uh, and the, in a context where the things that would help them with that were just not available, access to families, access to support services. Um, and, you know, the, the, the concerns uh, staff were hearing from parents that they were struggling and turning to drugs and alcohol. Um, and, we, we, you know, our staff then were picking up concerns about actually the children being more at risk in that context. So what, you know, what can you do about that? It's got to be about practical supports and being able to respond uh, to, to alleviate some of the pressures that families are experiencing. And um, the kind of, um, the experience of delivering that wasn't always uh, straightforward for stuff. It was very challenging because you're not always sure what's happening. So you talked about these on the ground level um offers of support and uh, abilities to connect people with each other. And of course, we know that um, social isolation and a feeling of shame and stigma is something that goes along with um, the experience of poverty, pandemic or no pandemic. Any thoughts about how you might keep some of these elements going um, into 2021 and as we move hopefully out of the kind of lockdown and tier world, but also into, you know, what is definitely going to be hugely economically challenging period yeah so i mean you know uh, we, we to take an example i've already spoken about um toy library that we established in partnership with other organizations the the dialogue has moved on now with local community organizations about how we make a kind of community resource permanently available and how we we, we find the appropriate home for that in terms of the right community organisation to lead it, have community representatives involved in leading that and get it onto a sustainable footing. Um, because actually, it, 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 it is a really positive contribution to family support in, uh, in the context of the community that we're, that we're working in. Uh, so so that, that's, a, that's, that's a, a very tangible uh, example of the um, of the kind of legacy of what we've done in a, in a very sort of pragmatic, reactive way in yeah. the context of a crisis. Uh, I mean, I think there's uh, also uh, a sense of wanting to learn about those elements of online or remote support that actually worked quite well for people and how to, to, to retain them, as well as uh, moving back to face-to-face -face and contact in the family home as soon as possible for as many as possible of the situations where that really matters. And we're very conscious, I think, we were very conscious of the hidden impact on children. So things that we couldn't see. So for example, uh, children uh, aged zero to five who were missing the normal health visitor uh, assessments. Um, you know, there will be children who've got communication or language difficulties or other developmental issues which have not been picked up. So in terms of what you've learned about, about families' need, immediate need, and the kind of need they might be facing coming out of this pandemic, uh, what would be your reflections there, Matt? Right, well, I think there's no doubt that we, what we've seen is that children have, uh, have suffered through this pandemic. They've 
the most honourable children have suffered the most. Uh, they've experienced the most enormous setback uh, in all sorts of ways. So we think it's absolutely vital that the, there's recovery services for children, especially mental health services, that, that provide them with the therapeutic support they need to recover. Uh, I think also uh, we, we can't uh, forget what we've learned about the digital divide and about the lack of access to the basic connections that matter, pandemic or not pandemic, um, and the financial hardship that families uh, are living with day and daily uh, is, is something that we really need, feel needs to be addressed. Uh, and lastly, the strong local communities is the best way of helping children have healthy, happy childhoods. Lovely. Thank you, Matt. So some really sound, grounded, practical examples and some real possibilities and potential for um, continuing to build on that work into the future. Um, so we want to come to Deborah now and kind of build on that. And obviously, um, Ashleen and um, Matt have both talked about the, the challenges and the opportunities of this um, this different kind of working that we've been um, forced into by the pandemic. But having been forced into it, it'd be interesting to hear from you um, from the sort of NSPCC service centres perspective, what kind of opportunities you see this, um, these changes um, arising from these changes looking forward? Thank you. Yes, I think um, the opportunities perhaps arise from a wider range of ways to engage with children and families. Um, as other people have said, a year ago, we wouldn't have imagined that it was possible to work remotely or online. Um, so I think we need to build the skills and the confidence of staff to continue to understand how to um, use some of the tools, for example, that we would use in a face-to-face -face session when we're working online. So if you just think about something that a lot of social workers would use in their practice, like genograms or eco maps, if you're sitting in a room with somebody, you're sort of having a conversation, you're writing, they're writing, you're supporting that, that child or that adult. When you're doing things remotely, it's, it's very difficult. So I think there is a space for continuing to develop our knowledge and our confidence. Um, I think, um, we need to make a careful assessment about when is the right time to work online and when is the right time to be in the same space as a child or their family. So, for example, if we've been uh, asked to work with a child of four who's been sexually abused, I would imagine the opportunities going forward are that we can do so much more now with their parent and caregiver, the safe carer, but there will always be a need to do trauma-focused work on a face-to-face -face basis with a small child like that because um, although a lot of children are familiar with devices, children at certain ages are not comfortable to talk about certain things. Um, and even children that we thought would want to engage with us online have said they didn't want to do that, not for all of the work anyway. So they were really thrilled that they could stay, I think the most important thing was staying connected. And the opportunities going forward, I think, are about so different stages of children's lives children often have had to cancel appointments because they've got to work or their parents have got to work or they've had an operation or they just can't come in or it's too expensive or something like that. This means that we can say, okay, you can't come for your plan session, but I could see you for half an hour, virtually see you. And I think that level of flexibility will really help families to see that we're working alongside them. Um, 
So I think there's lots of opportunities. I don't think it's a one size fits all. Um, I really do think blended, um, we call it blended approaches, will we'll offer lots of opportunities. We found particularly working with parents. So we've had to put a lot of planning and thought into how we work with parents and children online. So the opportunities are great and probably endless, but also workers have got to spend a lot of time prepping properly. So they have to send things out. They have to have a conversation with a parent if they're going to try and replicate something that they would have done face to face. And they're asking a parent to use their um, that space with their child. They have to really support them to do that because parents haven't got the script to be a professional. And just as we didn't have the script about how to work with parents remotely or children, we've had to learn a lot of things. So we have to spend that time, I think, uh, working with parents and we have to make careful judgments, whatever the opportunities seem that they might be, to actually have those conversations about, does it feel safe to do the work? Is, is there confidential space for our workers who might be maybe back in an office, but if they're working from home, can they work safely at home? You know, what are their home circumstances? And also what's the impact of staff of working with quite difficult subject matter in their own home? In the past, they used to be able to put their coat on, get into the car and or get on a train or a bus or something. So there's lots of opportunities, but we also have to do careful risk assessments, I think, for the children, for their parents and for our staff. Um, and recognising that in the online world, we don't see everything. We see some things and we don't pick up as many things potentially as we might if we were actually having face to face and sitting with silence sometimes or watching what's uncomfortable so I think there's lots of opportunities but there's still a very big space for developing our knowledge and our skills and our, our experience. Yeah I mean Harry, Harry Ferguson who's been doing this longitudinal study through the pandemic um, building on work he'd done before has written a lot about this hasn't he about touch and smell and and yeah. those important aspects of being with people that yeah. uh, obviously we're missing in this kind of situation and the kind of issues about the workforce reflective supervision online is also another whole area isn't it how to build that yeah and staying connected with your colleagues um, it's very different this way but trying to have a sufficient supervision staying in touch time virtual cups of tea developmental opportunities to share I tried this and it really seemed to work you know and building up the resource bank at home as well as in service centres because at the moment everyone we work with has their own little box of things because people can't share toys and resources and things like that so we've even had to sort of bring in like little uh, fleecy blankets which are just for one child or one parent because we have to have the windows open and it's cold so there's just really practical things that we need to be thinking about as well as uh, the emotional health and well-being of staff and of our service users through through this period um, up into the autumn and beyond I think. Yeah no I think so um, but we are and I'm sure you are hearing you know really interesting um, opportunities in all of this especially, you know, and always where, as you're suggesting, you know, decisions about when and where are driven by what the child or, or the um, adults that we're working with um, wants at that particular time. We heard, for instance, you know, especially in, in the earlier part of 2020 about um, social workers and young people feeling that their relationship had deepened by 
shorter um, uh, WhatsApp calls or, or connections more frequently rather than the sort of planned visit at, at longer um, with longer gaps in between. Have you have you been hearing about that kind of stuff as well? Definitely, definitely. And that's been about trying to be child led, not making assumptions about what all children will feel comfortable to do. And at first that felt a bit uncomfortable for us. You know, a phone call is not the same as seeing a child for that, you know, a text message. Uh, some One child didn't want to speak on the phone. She just wanted to text. And we had to live with a certain amount of risk around that. But risk assessing that whilst they're in contact with us and they have a trusted, safe adult, we are hoping to build on that. And we have seen that happen as well, that sometimes it's about a toe in the water, build that relationship slowly, and then maybe eventually go to actually seeing somebody. And, and for us to be thinking, we didn't all feel comfortable looking at ourselves or looking at each other. And actually, we're only about, um, you know, we're less than a metre away from each other often when we're looking at laptops or devices. Well, we'd never sit that close to somebody in an actual real space, would we? So it's not it's not perhaps surprising that people felt uncomfortable about it. But just going back to the opportunities, I, th I think um, building what Matt said, I think communities want to be proactive and help. So at the beginning, we put out we we were very aware of poverty and the impact issues for families. And we put some one little request out and we were inundated on that day with practical things to do with toiletries. We were also looking particularly at sanitary products because we became aware that the usual avenues for support for young people were not there. And there were people arriving at the service centre with things to donate. They might not have been able to give money, but they were very connected with the idea of how the the pandemic was affecting children who couldn't access normal services and I think it's about telling the lived experience of children and families um, and people started to talk to us about their own childhood experiences of poverty of abuse and neglect and how they really wanted to help and do something and in some of them they didn't want to leave their name and address they didn't want a thank you card they just wanted to do something so I think how we bring more people in to help children and families and communities is a really there's an opportunity through this process to think actually people are interested and how do we engage people at the right level for them to support the work that we're doing on the front line? I think that's a really positive note to sort of come towards the end of the pan uh, end of the pandemic, end of the podcast <laughs> on, hopefully the end of the pandemic as well before too long, um, kind of building on that empathy and community, um, that sense of communities coming together as we come out of it and you know there, there will be opportunities for for division and divisiveness as well but to try and keep building on um you know the sharing that you've all kind of talked about in those in those community initiatives and um uh, yeah grow the work that you've been doing together so um brilliant to hear about the commitment and um passion and um hard slog that people have brought to this brilliant to hear that you were so off the mark as to be you know capturing with um research right through this period and um i hope this podcast is a good um addition to the spotlight material that you guys are, are releasing and that that will be great learning to share with the rest of the sector thank you very much thank you for listening to this research in practice podcast we hope you've enjoyed it why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on twitter 
tweet us at researchip.